Whoever loves their brother or sister, says John, lives in the light. Well, it's often claimed that love comes naturally, but hate is learned. Is that really reflected in the world that we see around us? Looking back in history, it's not at all clear that love can be said to come naturally. Well, take the ancient world. Take the era in which this first letter of John was written. The dominant culture was the culture of the Roman Empire. Now, the Romans were good at roads and city planning and water transportation and politics. But they kept slaves as private property with slave owners free to rape or flog or kill those slaves as they saw fit. The threat of crucifixion if they ran away. They left unwanted newborn babies to die on hillsides. During half-time at the Roman Games, pairs of condemned criminals would be placed, one at each end of a seesaw, before lions were released into the arena. And so as one criminal pushed himself off the ground, the criminal at the other end would be plunged downwards into the mouth of a prowling lion and crowds would cheer and lay bets on which criminal would be able to keep up in the air and away from the lions the longest. In the words of historian Tom Holland, it, it was a terrifyingly alien world built on systematic exploitation. Well, have things got any better? It depends on where you look, doesn't it? In in the West, we like to think that we've arrived, that notions of equality and justice and liberty and care for the poor are are universal, self-evident truths that every right-thinking human being ought to embrace gladly. But it hasn't always been like this. Uh, This historian, Tom Holland, he's recently published a book called Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. And for the record, he says he's an agnostic. But he argues in this book that far from being self-evident, liberty and equality and all these things that we sort of celebrate now are directly attributable to the influence of Christianity on the whole world. And even more than that, we might say, as much as it ought to be obvious that we need to love one another, in practice, it really isn't clear that human beings believe that. Whether we're talking about falling out over Brexit or falling out over the washing up. So when John talks about love in these verses in front of us, as we read them this morning, this is not something that we do naturally. In fact, you don't need to tell people to do something that comes naturally, do you? You just let them get on with it. But for John in these verses, love is very much not a given. And at this stage, he's not even talking about the pagan world out there. He's talking about relationships within the church. Now, just to remind us where we are in this letter, John is writing to Christians who are unnerved by the departure of people who claim to have a superior version of Christianity. And he writes to reassure them, you know the real God, because you've heard the testimony of the apostles who saw Jesus live, die and rise. And this God that you know, he is light. He is perfectly good. He defines goodness. And now that light has come into the world. 
Now the darkness we learn in these verses we have in front of us this morning, that darkness, verse 8, is passing away. God's light will win. Light always wins over darkness. But for the time being, we are in a world where there is both light and darkness. And some people are walking in the light and some are walking in the darkness. So the question is, who's who? And these guys who left were saying they were the ones walking in the light. And they, we saw last time they were claiming some kind of special victory over sin. And John says, no, these guys are liars. They are deceiving themselves and they're deceiving you. Walking in the light doesn't mean absence of sin, but revelation of sin. The lights are on because God is light. So if you're walking with him in his light, you will deeply and increasingly be aware of your sin and how far short of God's perfection you fall. And therefore, walking in the light means not denying your sin or pretending it doesn't matter, but being honest about it, confessing your sin, trusting in Jesus, your advocate who died as an atoning sacrifice on the cross. So be reassured, if you are struggling with sin, that is what the normal Christian life feels like. Stick with Jesus who died for sinners. Now you might call that the vertical dimension of the Christian life, the the, the dimension of the life between us and God. Stick with those who are humble before God and about their sin and point to Jesus as their saviour. But There is a horizontal aspect to the Christian life as well. We're not Christians in isolation. And how we treat each other is further evidence of whether our claim to walk in the light is genuine or false. So John turns to that in these verses. So as you can see on uh, on the handouts, He essentially says the same couple of things in a number of different ways in these verses. Verses 3 to 11, chapter 2. So the first main thing we can see in these verses, false claims exposed by lack of love for others. False claims exposed by lack of love for others. So we had three claims before in in verses 5 to 10 of chapter 1. Uh, we, we saw if we claim to have fellowship with him, if we claim to, have, to be without sin, if we claim we have not sinned, and that set of three claims is essentially the same claim, me and God, we are okay, there is no problem here. Well, in these verses now, verses 3 to 11, we get another set of three claims. Now, it's not completely obvious in our translation, but they all start exactly the same way in the original language. It, it literally is, the one who says... So verse 4, the one who says, I know him. Verse 6, the one who says he lives or remains or abides in him. Verse 9, the one who says he is in the light. That's the same kind of claim each time. A a, a claim, again, like like in chapter 1, a claim to know God. But this time John is saying there is a horizontal issue with this claim. Verse 4, he does not keep God's commands. Verse 6, it's not spelt out, but there's an implication again that people are not walking as Jesus did. And verse 9, he hates his brother. 
Now, of course, it's not just men in view here, but people in general doing the hating and being hated. And at face value, if you look through these verses, you might think there are two different things going on here. Something about keeping God's commands, which is the language, or mainly the language of verses 3 to 6. And then from verse 7 onwards, something about uh, love. And it's common, actually, to separate out these two things in this letter into two kind of separate tests, the obedience test and the love test of what genuine Christianity looks like. And as a result, it's common to split these verses, verses 3 to 11, into two separate bits. But actually, the structure of these two sets of three claims that you get, we saw last week, chapter 1, one set of three claims. Now, in chapter 2, another set of three claims bridging the whole, all of these verses, 3 to 11. That shows us that really, this is one unit. It's one thought. It's about one thing. And actually, you read through the rest of the letter... And you'll see it's really hard to separate out this love and obedience. And really they are one thing. And that is because one of the key things that Jesus commanded his followers to do, so if you're going to obey him, you need to do this. What was the key thing? It was to love one another. And we heard that in the first reading, repeated over and over. from John chapter 15. And so that's precisely what he then says in verses 7 and 8, as he describes what kind of obedience he's talking about. So look at this again, verse 7. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet, I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Now we think, how? What do you mean, John? Is it old or is it new? What are you talking about? What he's saying it's both. Now, a, a new commandment, first of all, makes us think of the opening verse that we heard. You can see it on the front of the, of the service sheet, John 13. A new command I give you, Jesus said. Love one another as Christ loved you. But John will be keen also to stress that in another sense what he's saying to them now is not new at all. Not new to these Christians who are hearing him say this. Because this fits with everything he's been saying. This is the same gospel message they heard in the beginning when they came to faith. These false teachers are encouraging them to move on from the message they heard from the apostles. And he's saying, no, stick with what you have always known. Love one another. That is what matters. So do you see, obeying Jesus' commands means loving one another. And and seeing the connection between the two keeps us from being fooled into thinking that loving one another is some kind of, you know, wishy-washy, hyper-emotional, irrational, whatever you want it to be, sentimentalism. Love in the Bible is always obedience-shaped. And the Bible gives us the parameters of how and what we love. And it is very specifically loving as Jesus loved us. And and love is often practical. It's not just emotional, just as Jesus' love. How do we know Jesus loves us? Well, that's not an emotional thing primarily, although it's not unemotional, but it's not primarily emotional because you see his love in his action, in his death, not just in his words. So what is Christian love? Well, it is maybe clearing up after someone 
when they don't even realise. It's serving when no eyes are on us. It's seeking the welfare of others at our own expense. It's even challenging someone when they're going astray, going after them rather than taking the easy way out and saying nothing. You know, all smiles and froth, but no substantive action. John is saying, when you love one another, that is the sign that you are living in the light, verse 10. And in fact, the language there in verse 10 and then in verse 11 is about staying and going. Staying in the light means loving your brother and sister. And then verse 11, the way you can tell these others are living in darkness despite their claims is that they don't love. In fact, if you look at verse 11, do you see, they hate and they, they are going, do you see, but they don't know where they are going. So who's going in, in this first letter of John? The, the, the people we'll meet in a couple of weeks' time, the Antichrists are going. They are leaving the church, saying, we know something better about God that you don't know. And he's saying, no, they are going out into the darkness. They do not know where they are going. And in doing that, they are marked, not by some amazing spiritual superiority, but they are marked by hatred. It's amazing how false teaching about Jesus can easily lead to a hatred of real believers. I have a few friends who are on the general synod of the Church of England, which is a whole barrel of laughs, I can tell you. It's a bit like the Parliament for the Church of England. And it debates new laws and measures for the future of the church. And if you stand up for biblical truth and you say, no, we shouldn't be giving in to the pressure of culture and we need to stick with the message of the apostles, as we've been seeing here in 1 John, you stand up and say that in that kind of environment, you can expect tutting and booing and mocking laughter from people around you who say, we are walking in the light, we are Christians who follow Jesus. But they hate it when people stand up and say we need to listen to what God says in his word. And if we are going to stand for Christian truth in a world that is increasingly having nothing to do with that, we may well find that ourselves. But in contrast to that, how we treat each other matters. Not just in the wider church, but right here, right now. Do you notice in John's mind it is black and white? There is either love or hate. There isn't something in between, which is so often what we're satisfied with, isn't it? Well, you know, I don't, I don't hate her, I just avoid her at all costs and we never speak. Now, there are times and situations when, you know, a, an abused spouse or a son or a daughter might choose to distance themselves from a close family member or friend for the sake of self-protection. But John isn't talking about that. He's talking about Christian brothers and sisters. And the thing is, if we are behaving like that with Christian brothers and sisters, that is not okay. There's not something we can sort of carry on with for, for you know, days, weeks, months, years. And, and more than that, if that is how someone who claims to be a faithful Christian teacher or preacher behaves, if there's lots of truth and apparent knowledge of God but there is little love, or in its place there is even bullying or belittling or abuse even, of whatever kind, or maybe a concern only for a certain type of person, 
Well, that is when alarm bells should be ringing. Now, why does love matter so much? Well, look back at verse 5. Do you see this? If anyone obeys his love, God's love is truly made complete in him. Now, that phrase, God's love, is literally the love of God. And the love of God, if you think about it, could mean God's love for us. But it could also mean our love for God, couldn't it? The love of God, you know, like the love of money or the love of coffee or something like that. Either actually would fit with John's message later in the letter. You can, if you look later, chapter 4, verse 12, chapter 5, verse 3, have one of each type of way of reading the love of God in those verses. But here the claim seems to be, I know God, I know him, I live in him. And so here probably he means... Our love for God is truly made complete. In other words, you can't say, I know him, I love God, and not love other Christians. Loving Christians completes that claim to say, I love God. I think that's what's going on in verse 5. These things are inseparable. You know, if you really want to, you can love the queen, but hate her people. You can often love a leader and yet not love the people that they lead. But if you're maybe a husband or a wife, you cannot look into your beloved's eyes and say, I love you, but not your body. And God's people are the body of Christ. Christianity is not just me and God having a one-to-one for eternity. It's me and his people, one body, loving one another as he has loved us in Christ. Loving one another isn't just an optional extra. It's not a distraction from the real gospel work or from what God is doing in the world. It is what God is doing in the world in the sense that he is in the business of building a community, a church which has Jesus at the centre, the the gospel, the message of the apostles that brings us together. But therefore, because of that, is marked by genuine love for him and for one another. But what about the lost, someone might say? You know, the people who don't know Jesus, isn't that the priority? Isn't that more important? Shouldn't we be focusing on them more than, you know, if we say we're going to focus on loving one another, we're going to forget about all the people out there in the world. Well, the reason the Bible puts such emphasis on Christians loving one another is not so that we become a holy huddle, a clique, hiding away from the world, but so that we become an attractive, distinctive community where, you know, when an unbeliever meets us, they come in and they go, what on earth brings you together? They don't love one one another like this at the chess club or at Pilates or at work. What is different about you? Well, one of the answers to the lack of love and the huge division we're seeing in our world around us right now is to start here. To be the people of God, loving one another across the barriers that would normally divide people. How can we do that? We can do that because of our common faith in Jesus, uniting around Jesus and the Apostles' message that John is bringing us back to and saying, stick with this. It will lead 
to love, and that will be a huge witness to a watching world. But if that love for one another is not there, well, they'll they'll never notice, they'll never ask. So that is the first thing. False claims exposed by lack of love for others. But then there's a flip side. As you'll see, the second thing in these verses, genuine believers reassured by real love for others. So, verse 3. Have a look at that. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. And in particular, we've seen that his commands, he's talking about here, is the command to love one another. And verse 5, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing to make him stumble. But we might ask, well, okay, exactly how is this meant to be reassuring? Because if I'm really honest, my love for other Christians is patchy. And it's often stretched to the limit by my sin and my selfishness and by the sin and selfishness of others. On paper, I'm quite happy to sign up to loving one another, but in practice, I know that I fall short. Certainly my experience living as a Christian. So should I therefore be questioning the genuineness of my faith? And there's a danger with these tests in John's letter that we end up using them for a purpose for which they're not intended. A bit like baseball bats. So I read recently that in Moscow, in 2015, there were half a million baseball bats sold. Half a million baseball bats and one ball. (laughs) Now, I imagine the statistics in London, maybe on, you know, kitchen knives, tragically, would be just as alarming. But baseball bats can be used for positive, wholesome purposes, if baseball is your thing, but they can also be misused for destruction. And there's a danger that we take this love test and we weaponize it on ourselves or others. You're not loving enough, or or, or even I'm not loving enough. Are you sure you're a proper Christian? Am I really a Christian? And like with a baseball bat, what we find is we we, we find ourselves getting beaten up. But this is where we need to remember what we heard last week. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. He can't mean only perfection will do. Because while this darkness is still passing away, as he puts it, we certainly won't love perfectly. But love doesn't have to be perfect to be real. Do you love your biological family perfectly? Well, almost certainly not. You will be aware of ways that you let them down every day. I know I certainly am. But do you love your family? Well, surely, yes, you do. And it's the same among Christians, do you see? Of course, we need to check ourselves. We need to think, am I concerned for others? But where you see real, if not perfect, love, be reassured. 
Now, if you're new to St. John's, we hope and pray that you will find this to be a place where if you are struggling, people will encourage you and they will love you and they will point you to Jesus and to the hope that we have in him in the face of all that we go through in this world because Jesus died for us and we have real hope and we have a real message of hope to share with each other. If you're ill, we hope people will offer to to care for you. If you're rejoicing, people will rejoice with you. If you're mourning, people will mourn with you. And we hope and pray that you will be able to do all that with others as well. And I know all those things do go on in different ways. We won't always do it perfectly. Sometimes we get it very wrong. We're sinners and we're all works in progress. But that is who we want to be and what we want to look like. Because this is how Jesus has loved us and served us by giving up his life for us on the cross. So as we draw this together then, can you see love for one another isn't an optional extra. It is intrinsic to our identity as Christians. It is what marks us out. It doesn't come naturally, but it comes as the fruit of Jesus' love for us. So if you're still not sure where you personally stand with Christian things, this is where you need to look. You need to think, how? imagine if I was a Christian, imagine if I was trusting in Jesus, what difference would that make to my life? And how do I see that in the lives of those around me? What is it that is changing people? What is it that's causing them to love in unnatural ways? And see how it flows from the love that Jesus has shown for us by going to the cross for us. Let's not therefore just be people who talk about love, but let's be people who live this love as he describes it here. And let's not be fooled by anyone or anything that claims to know God but is not marked by the kind of obedience-shaped love that Jesus modelled for us, loving one another as he has loved us. Let's pray. Father, we see here a a beautiful, mouth-watering picture of what a family looks like, a family trusting in Jesus, a family of those united around Jesus. And we want to be that family in this church. We pray that we would not be fooled into thinking that love is uh, an optional extra. But as we come to Jesus and we place our faith in him, as we find our sins forgiven, as we rejoice in the confidence we have before God, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us, might that then overflow into love for one another that then reaches into the world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.